Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number one, First Kings, an introduction. And we've spent nearly two years in the book of Samuel. First and second Samuel combined. So I think it's time for us to step back and to review what we've learned. Okay. And at the same time, set the stage for a study of the book of Kings, first and second Kings. Now remember that at one time, these four books were but a single enormous work, which was then divided into two books in Alexandria, Egypt, around two centuries before the birth of Christ. Later still, these two books were divided in half again, and this is the form we see it in today. That they were originally all one book explains just how connected, how interlocking are the events that are described in them. In fact, Josephus, who lived from around the time of Jesus' crucifixion until well after Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans, says that in his day, the Hebrew Bible consisted of only 24 books. Our modern Bibles count 39 Old Testament books. And that Samuel and Kings were still one book each. Interestingly, he also says that all of the minor prophets were contained in one book. Lamentations wasn't divided yet off from Jeremiah. And Ruth was still part of the book of Judges. Now, from the 30,000 foot view, we need to see biblical Israel as the theocracy that it was. A theocracy is a form of government whereby a nation's ruled by that nation's God and the laws and the regulations that particular deity sets down. Now usually it is priests who administer the government on behalf of that God. Therefore the Bible regularly calls theocratic Israel the kingdom of God. Now, Israel's history as a theocracy can, for the sake of study, be divided up into three eras. The first one being under the rule of the prophets. So this encompasses from Moses to Samuel. The second period was the era of the kings, beginning with Saul and then ending with their exile, or at least the exile of Judah, rather, into Babylon. The third period is when Israel was under the rule of high priests. This is the time of Ezra up to and including Messiah's advent. So from a broad view, we see the administration of God's justice over his kingdom by means of prophet and then king and then finally high priest. And the purpose for the Lord causing this long cycle 
of Israel's development to evolve through these three different types of administration becomes obvious only in hindsight. Because only then can we look back and see that each of these administrations in its own unique way pointed towards Messiah. Thus, now we know that Messiah Yeshua, the Savior God-man, is fully prophet, king, and high priest. And we know from later books of the New Testament, especially Revelation, that He's going to rule, He's going to administer justice in every one of those capacities forever. Well, when we first entered the book of Samuel, we witnessed the closing of the first era, the era of the prophets, who at the end of that era were called judges, shoftim. And the entry then, of course, into the second era. Now, that means that Samuel was a transitional figure. He is not only the last prophet judge, but he is also the one whom God used to usher in the administration of the kings by anointing the first king of Israel, Shaul the Benjamite. Now at the time of Samuel's birth, which was about 1070 BC, the priesthood in Israel is in a general state of decline. And even the high priest Eli's sons are blatantly disobeying God's laws. The wilderness tabernacle is a ramshackle. And it appears that parts of it are even being used as housing. All right, for Eli. God declares that he's going to choose a new priest for Israel from outside of Eli's family. His was the line of Ithamar. That in itself is an unauthorized line for priests. And Yehovah also begins delivering divine messages to Samuel as a young man. And Samuel becomes a recognized prophet throughout Israel, delivering God's messages to the people. Now Samuel, look at your maps in the panel. Samuel operates mainly out of the south-central part of the Promised Land. And it's there that the dreaded Philistines are continually oppressing Israel. And during one of the seemingly never-ending skirmishes with the Israelites, the Philistines kill Eli's sons and they capture the all-important Ark of the Covenant. And upon learning of this calamity, the elderly Eli, who is sitting in a chair at the city gate, falls over backwards, he breaks his neck and he dies. But it turns out that the ark is more than the Philistines bargained for. They set it in the temple to their chief god, Dagon, as a kind of victory offering. But their god idol falls over and breaks. The ark is quickly removed from that temple, but 
Everywhere it's transferred in Philistia, the people are afflicted with grotesque diseases and death. And finally, out of desperation, the ark is returned to Israel in an unmanned ox cart, along with some valuable gifts as a kind of penance. And as the ark arrives in Beit Shemesh, the local residents are just overjoyed. However, they seem to know nothing of God's Torah commandment not to look upon the ark that in times past now had been hidden away in the Holy of Holies. And so many of the Hebrews die as a consequence. And like the Philistines, they now want rid of it. And they call on some men from Kiryat Yarim to come and fetch it. And the ark is transported there and it's going to remain stored away in a common building for decades. The, then Samuel persuades Israel to set aside its worship of local pagan deities and God helps Israel thwart Philistine oppression for many years. But of course, inevitably, it starts up again. Now the Israelites demand that this time Samuel appoint a king for them. Primarily so that Israel can be more powerful, so that it, it can protect itself like the other nations do. And Samuel's very concerned about this development. But God grants him permission to elect a king. Now ironically, Yehovah had been preparing Israel for a king all along, especially during the era of the judges. And even demonstrating that mankind must have a king to rule over them. And yet God notes that by asking for a king, the people have in a sense rejected God. Samuel warns the people that a monarchy brings certain drawbacks, such as taxation, conscription of armed forces, the potential for tyranny. People pay no attention to this. They want what they want, and they want a king. Now the problem with a king is not with the office, but with the attitude of the office holder. Kings wanted personal power. They wanted wealth. They wanted to be served. Now that's all mankind's typical view of a king. But God's view of a king is as a shepherd, as a provider, as one who serves and saves. And as we see all throughout the Bible, the Lord knows that it's the fall of the nature of fallen humans that we go through a process to get to this glorious end that God has planned. This process is what we call history. Or in Israel's case, redemption history. So, the first part of this particular stage of this process is to give the people of Israel exactly what they want. A king after their own hearts. A king in their own image. A man from the tribe of Benjamin 
named Saul appears before Samuel. And he's inquiring about some lost donkeys. And at God's instruction, Samuel pours oil over Saul's head to anoint him as king. Shaul, who's a head taller than the average man, visually pleases the Israelites as king. And he leads them in rescuing an Israelite outpost over in the Transjordan from invasion. Stepping down now as Israel's leader, Samuel brings the era of the prophets to an official close. Samuel encourages the people that if they will be obedient to God's Torah commandments, God won't punish them for requesting a king. Well, in no time at all, Saul shows himself for who he really is. And he disobeys God. And he tries to rush into battle by performing a ritual war sacrifice, but without a priest. Later on, Samuel sends Saul to fight the Amalekites, instructing Saul to to destroy them completely, to leave nothing alive. Saul, however, spares the Amalekite ruler and the best portion of their flocks disregarding the law of harem, the laws regarding regarding holy war spoils, hoping to present these as holy sacrifices to God. Samuel rebukes Saul for such a folly, explaining that obedience to God's instructions is far more important than any amount of religious sacrifice. And he informs Saul that God is going to choose another man now to be king of Israel. And Saul pleads with Samuel. He begs for forgiveness. Saul reaches out and he grabs Samuel's cloak. The cloth tears. A symbol of Saul's broken kingdom, of his revoked kingship, of his abandonment by God. Now God leads Samuel to the town of Bethlehem of Judah to choose a new king from Jesse's family. Samuel anoints Jesse's youngest son, David, a young shepherd, as the next king of Israel. King Saul King Saul has completely withdrawn from trust in God. So God withdraws from him. And by doing so, by pulling his Holy Spirit from Saul, this curses Saul with a psychological form of distress in the form of an evil spirit. And hoping to soothe what can only be described now as the mentally ill Saul, the king's royal cabinet brings in David the shepherd, who's also an expert musician, as a harp player for Saul during this king's emotional unrest. Well, the Philistines have by now regained their military strength. And so again they threaten to attack Israel, and this time taunting Israel with their new hero, Goliath, a 
giant of a man, around nine feet tall. Saul and the Israelites are trembling with fear. But David, arriving to deliver food to his brothers, offers to fight this giant when nobody else will. And refusing to accept King Saul's offer of his personal armor, David stands upon God's power to deliver and he kills Goliath with a single stone expertly shot from his sling. The Philistines flee at the sight of their fallen champion and Saul returns home to the welcome sound of women singing praises to David speaking of the battle as his victory, not Saul's. The now wholly unstable Saul becomes homicidally paranoid of David, who only heaps more hot coals upon the king's head by becoming an intimate friend of Saul's son, Jonathan. And after attempting to kill David with a spear... Saul sends David on a suicide mission to kill a hundred Philistine men and bring back their foreskins. And David succeeds. And so Saul grudgingly rewards David with his daughter Michal's hand in marriage. Saul orders his household now to capture David. But with the help of Michal and Jonathan, David escapes from Saul. But now David's a fugitive. And he builds an army of other disenfranchised Israelites who will wander in the desert wilderness for years. Well, Saul pursues David into the desert where David spares the king's life twice. Perhaps the most famous case was when Saul is relieving himself in a cave. David sneaks up behind him. He cuts off a corner of his robe foregoing the opportunity to kill God's formerly anointed ruler. And on another occasion at night, David and his men sneak into the king's tent and they steal Saul's spear while he's sleeping. And on both occasions, David announces his deed to Saul. And Saul expresses remorse both times, begging for David's mercy still. Saul continues his pursuit. And David finally takes refuge with the Philistines who show mercy to the great warrior and adversary of Israel's king. (laughs) And preparing to fight the Philistines, Saul is racked with fear and he consults a witch in the village of Endor bidding the spirit medium to conjure up the dead spirit of Samuel. Now this apparition angrily warns Saul that he and his sons are going to die fighting the Philistines, ensuring the demise of Saul's kingdom. David and his men head out to fight the Amalekites. David succeeds in destroying the warring nation. And in the meantime, Saul leads Israel into this losing battle with the Philistines and Saul's sons, including Jonathan, are killed. The wounded Saul commands his armor bearer to kill him, but the frightened boy refuses. Saul falls on his own sword. 
the first king of Israel's dead. And as we exit 1 Samuel and enter 2 Samuel, the way has now been cleared for David to assume the throne of the kingdom of God. The idea of a royal monarchy ruling Israel is being displayed now for us in its twofold possibilities. At its most negative and at its most positive. Saul embodied the royal idea of human desires. While David represented the scriptural idea of a human king submitting to the desires of his heavenly master. Well, David goes to Hebron, where his followers in the southern tribe of Judah, which is David's own tribe, anoint him as their king. Meanwhile, Saul's chief commander, Abner, garners the support of the northern tribes and appoints Saul's son, Ishbosheth, as a kind of a puppet king of Israel. Now a war ensues between these conflicting regimes. It's all played out in a series of small hand-to-hand contests between Abner's men and the army of Joab, David's general. The self-serving Abner defects to David's court, knowing that David is destined to rule over the whole land. But Abner's support now means that David has two competing chief military commanders. His nephew Joab and the newly loyal Abner who convinces the northern tribes to recognize David's claim to the throne. Joab, however, uses revenge for his brother's earlier death at Abner's hands as an excuse to rid himself of this rival. And he assassinates Abner. David's public censure of Joab and his public mourning for Abner wins Israel's respect. And so now the united tribes declare David king of northern and southern Israel. And for the first time since Joshua led Israel across the Jordan River to claim Canaan, all Israel is under one leader even if the sentiment's hardly unanimous among all the clans. Well, David needs a neutral site for a capital city. So he conquers the Jebusite city of Jerusalem, a walled stronghold in the heart of Israel's territory. He calls it the city of David, or Zion. And growing in power now, David quells this ever-present Philistine threat in a decisive military victory, and he follows that up by bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem from where it had rested in Kiryat Yarim for decades. And in a raucous parade, complete with shouting and music, David dances in a rather unking-like manner in front of the ark, all to the embarrassment of his 
King Saul of his wife, King Saul's daughter, Michal. And David rebukes her, claiming that he'll humiliate himself just as much as he wants to. Because he thinks it's pleasing to God. Through David's prophet Nathan, Yehovah vows to give Israel rest from foreign oppression, foreign opposition. And he promises that the kingdom of David is going to last forever. And with Joab's services, David subdues the nations of the surrounding area. He expands Israel's borders while developing diplomatic relations with all these neighboring kingdoms. And in retrospect, we've just witnessed the pinnacle of David's reign and of his relationship with God. But now, the terrible slide begins. It won't end until his deathbed. Well, one day the bored and very self-satisfied David watches from the rooftop of his palace as a stunning woman bathes. He summons this young woman, Bathsheba, and he has sex with her. She becomes pregnant. And unable to hide his indiscretion, David arranges to have her husband, Uriah, done away with on the battlefield. David marries Bathsheba, but Nathan the prophet confronts the king about this horrific sin of adultery and murder. And Nathan tells David about a wealthy man who steals a poor man's only prized sheep. Now, unaware that this is only a parable, David is outraged by such selfishness and he orders this man to be executed. But then Nathan informs David, this is indeed a parable, but it's about him. Nathan says God's going to bring calamity on David's household generation after generation. David repents for his wrongdoing, but despite his fasting and praying, Bathsheba's son dies during childbirth. Afterward, David and Bathsheba have another son, Solomon. Well, David's older son, Amnon, behaving just like his father, falls in lust with his own half-sister, Tamar, and he rapes her. The disengaged David does nothing. But Tamar's brother, Absalom, invites Amnon out of the country where he and David's other sons murder Amnon in retribution. Absalom flees for three years. But David, after mourning for Amnon, allows the son Absalom back into Jerusalem. Absalom now plots a conspiracy, forming an army, winning the hearts of the Israelite people through false displays of warmth and kindness. And supported by David's chief counselor and Bathsheba's grandfather, Akitophel, Absalom goes to Hebron where his rebel followers pronounce him king. The shock, David flees from Jerusalem with his men and the people of the countryside weep as he marches by them barefoot, head covered in mourning. David meets a cast of characters as he leaves. 
And he's going to meet a similar cast as he returns in a few months. And one of these characters is Siva, Mephibosheth, Jonathan's lame son. Ziva, his estate steward. And Ziva has brought gifts of provisions to David. But David wonders why Mephibosheth didn't present them. And Ziva lies. And he says his master's actually rejoicing for this day. Because he thinks this means that the tribe of Benjamin, Mephibosheth's tribe, is now going to be restored to the throne. Absalom enters Jerusalem with his army. And in a display of dishonoring his father and usurping usurping his authority, he has sex with David's concubines. Absalom's aides advise him to attack David immediately while he's at his weakest. But one of David's still loyal officials, Hushai, pretending to support Absalom, persuades Absalom to wait until a larger military force can be assembled. This delay gives David time to prepare to get his forces together. And they kill 20,000 of Absalom's followers in the forests of Ephraim. Now riding away from this disaster, Absalom catches his head in the branches of a tree. Joab ignores David's instructions to treat Absalom gently and Absalom's killed. And when David hears of Absalom's death, he weeps. He screams repeatedly, Oh, my son, Absalom! Oh, Absalom, my son! And to the frustration of his officials, David now shows mercy to all of Absalom's supporters who approach him for forgiveness, especially to Absalom's commander, Amasa. David sends messengers to the leaders of Judah. The tribe welcomes him back back into Jerusalem. The remaining tribes, Absalom's chief supporters, fear that David's going to be angry at them. Yet another uprising now ensues, led by Sheba, a man from the northern tribal territories. But Joab traps these rebels in a walled city renowned for its wise counsel and the city's residents hand over the severed head of Sheba. Angered that David has shown mercy to Amasa, Joab deals with Amasa as he did with Abner and murders him one day while pretending to greet him with brotherly love. David rebuilds his throne with continuing acts of loyal, or rather local diplomacy and with military, more military victories over the Philistines. He composes a song, a psalm, praising God as a loving, as a kind deliverer. Well, David is now an elderly, frail, used up, bitter old man who has roamed far from the Lord. And yet, God continues to accept him as the anointed leader of Israel because deep within David's heart, deep within him, 
beats the heart of a man who trusts God. Because of David's actions, Jehovah will not allow David to build a temple for him. But he does allow David to buy the land in Jerusalem for the spot that the Creator has chosen for his earthly dwelling place. It's the threshing floor owned by Arunah the Jebusite, a Gentile. It's the same place where Abraham bound Isaac for sacrifice but was stopped at the last moment by the Lord. Well, as 2 Samuel ends and the first chapter of the first book of Kings is before us, David is nearing his death and he's ready to hand the throne over to his successor, Solomon. But as with everything else in David's life, this is not going to happen without his complications. We find that the book of 1 Kings begins with great uncertainty surrounding the throne. It moves on to the glory of Solomon's kingdom, but then it ends in disgrace with a series of wicked kings. 2 Kings begins with chaos and it ends in calamity. Now together... First and Second Kings covers a period of about 450 years from about 1015 B.C. to about 560 B.C. These books are told from a prophetic viewpoint. It's important. That is, the history of Israel in this era is written from the standpoint of a pivotal promise made by God to David that's contained back in 2 Samuel 7, 12-16. Don't turn there. I'm going to read it for you. There it says this. When your days come to an end and you sleep with your ancestors, I will establish one of your descendants to succeed you, one of your own flesh and blood, and I will set up his rulership. He will build a house for my name. I will establish his royal throne forever. I will be a father for him. He will be a son for me. If he does something wrong, I'll punish him with a rod and blows, just as everyone gets punished. Nonetheless, my grace will not leave him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Thus, your house, your kingdom, will be made secure forever before you. Your throne will be set up forever. The point is that even though there's a great deal of historical fact throughout the books of Samuel and now Kings, we're not to regard these scriptures as the mere accounts of men concerning the progress of a nation of people. 
Okay? And to help make that argument, George Weiner, a German Protestant theologian who wrote in the early 1800s, said the following about that concept. He says, The history of the Old Testament was not to be regarded as an aggregate of facts to be ascertained by diligent research and treated with literary ability, but rather as the manifestation of Jehovah and the events which occurred. Because the understanding of that, of which is the shows the influence of the Spirit of God, which was an essential condition. The Old Testament is not secular history with religious overtones swirled in like a blob of chocolate added to a white batter to make a marble cake. It's not secular history at all. Which is why the words spoken in the Old Testament were not spoken by authors but by prophets. Those who brought God's inspired words to mankind. It is only in the modern era of literary and textual criticism, which is now seen as a valid means to dissect the Bible, that its contents are now called literature. Before the Enlightenment of the 1700s, it sought to remove all spirituality, all divine mystery from European society. The word used for the writings of the Bible was Scripture, as set apart from literature. And Scripture could only be provided by prophets of God, not authors. And thus, though the book of Kings makes no mention of the prophet whose words these are, the Hebrew Talmud claims that it was Jeremiah who set down the book of the Kings. Now, there's no firm proof of that. The book as we have it today is no doubt a compilation of previous works because even the writings within the book of Kings itself tells us that. There's three works mentioned as being the source of much that is written in the book of Kings. First is the Annals of Solomon. Okay, We find this mentioned in 1 Kings 11. Second of all, we find the Annals of the Kings of Israel. We find that mentioned in 1 Kings 14, 2 Kings 15, among others, for a total of 17 mentions of this book. Third, the annals of the kings of Judah. We're told about this work in 1 Kings 14, 2 Kings 24, and in several other places for a total of 15 mentions about this book. Now, look. This sort of thing ought not to bother us at all unless the sources for the four Gospels 
at the beginning of the New Testament also cause us discomfort. Because each of the Gospels, especially the first three, is but collections of information obtained from multiple sources by a person who was sent to investigate the life and claims of Yeshua of Nazareth. In fact, there is no longer any credible doubt that two of the Gospels took some bits of information directly from the third of what the scholars call the Synoptic Gospels. Even the book of Revelation is largely a compilation of text taken from the prophetic books of the Old Testament. But with end times events set down for us sequentially in the order that they're to occur, something that really wasn't known until John wrote his Apocalypse. Now, just as I've described, uh, as I described at the beginning, that one way to look at the history of Israel from an overall perspective is as three administrations of God's justice, with the first one being by prophets, the next one by kings, and finally by high priests in Jesus' day. So we can divide now the book of Kings into three eras for study purposes. First of all, from 1 Kings 1-11. to This speaks of the reign of Solomon. Second, 1 Kings 12 on into 2 Kings 17. This is about the Israeli civil war and then the resultant divided monarchies of Judah and Israel. And third, 2 Kings 18 to its end. This is about the sad destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel, but the continuation of the southern kingdom of Judah. So essentially, the book of Kings is going to take us all the way from the era of Solomon, all the way down to the destruction of Jerusalem, by Nebuchadnezzar and then Israel's exile to Babylon. And we're going to start this fascinating journey next time.